John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 823.SS0115, certificate number 31513, Patrick Nagel. Because the episode number has SS in it. Does that qualify as a Hitler reference? We don't have to make it within the show. Oh, I just did. Oh, That's got to be the earliest one yet. Yeah, right at the start. Uh, no, since we're now out of the closet about what the uh, entry numbers mean, SS just means Song of Solomon. Oh, Song the of Solomon. The sexiest part of the Bible. Mm-hmm. I mean, even sexier than the rest. Yeah. It's, it's a sexy leather-clad book, but... It is. There's a awful lot of titillating material there's in that a reason book. why bibles are black leather let's put it that way right and paper thin you can see through the pages <laughs> you can see through the pages <laughs> well speaking of sex this is a sexy topic <laughs> this is a sexy topic weird outdated 80s idea of erotic well now wait a minute i take i take issue with that speaking of the sexy 80s you felt like the 80s version of sexuality was was what corny or Gross, banal, what was it? How did you how do you mm. perceive? Because the 80s had a very clear aesthetic that was sexualized, but I think even now we haven't really completely rehabilitated it. Or do we have a clear understanding of, of what that sexuality was? It's very it's sleek. It's uh, brittle. Mm-hmm. It's a little I'm thinking of Nagel here, but I mean you could turn on MTV at any year from 1982 to 1990 and see examples of this. Right. It seems cocaine fueled. Mm -hmm. Miami Vice. Miami Vice, right. And a lot of these looks I think have not aged well. The pastels and the, I mean, it's a punchline when you see somebody now with their suit sleeves pushed up to their elbows like like Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas used to do. Big broad shoulder pads and all the clothes. Sure, the kind, and the, the massive hairsprayed bangs that will take your eye out when the woman turns your head, or if she doesn't, the shoulder pads that will take your eye out. Right. If you're, if she's dating a shorter man, if she's one of these Sigourney <laughs> Weaver, 1980s Amazons. Uh-huh. Um, so Grace of, Jones. Grace Jones, exactly. A lot mm-hmm. of these looks have not held up. I mean, it's delightful to watch Grace Jones as a hench person in a, in a Bond movie, right. but you're really thinking, this is clearly from the mid 80s and Christopher Walken is so coked up right now. 
but they're very uh, antiseptic, but also hyper modern. I mean, when you think about yes. when you think about the look that is popular now, what we would think of as I don't I don't even know if you could use the word fashion now, but certainly the style is very retro now. A lot of uh, wool, you know, plaid shirts and beards on men. We talked about comfort food in, in a recent entry. This is the mm -hmm. comfort food equivalent for, you know, flannel is the equivalent of, of salty gravy for the, your body. Right. Young people still seem to be dressing kind of norm core, which is just thrift store style. I mean, and even know. to be cutting edge, what you do is you dress like some kind of lumberjack yeah. or something like that's how you, you would never show you were cutting edge by dressing like a Bowie album cover. But in the eighties, there still was a feeling that we were moderns and we were entering into a world where people would be dressing like astronauts or like, um, you know, in technicals, shiny fabrics and with haircuts that were, and a, a big factor of that was a kind of androgynousness. I was about to say the androgyny is, um, something you maybe see oddly a little less of today when you'd think we'd be more welcoming to a full spectrum of genders. Nope, it's still guys with big Red Sox beards drinking their IPAs. Well, and if you if you go to a rock concert now and and stand in the back and just look at haircuts, it's very. I mean, young women are not maybe universally, but but close to it, wearing long hair, long straight hair continues to be the the fashion. And in the nineteen eighties, there were so many haircuts on display, and a lot of them very androgynous, angular or flat toppy or uh, with the, the sides of the head shaved, but not just shaved as a kind of like way to get the dreadlocks out, but shaved as a, with lines and stripes and Zs. Think Flux. of Brian Bosworth. Flux. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brian Bosworth and Grace Jones were the two style uh, uh, icons. Right, Everyone kid else in play. America was their offspring. And you could have a flock of seagulls bouffant on top if you wanted, of course. But you would have to have the bat signal shaved into the <laughs> right side of your head if you were going to be in Arsenio's posse in 1989. But uh, stylistically, this was, in a lot of ways, it, it, there was a cocaine-y feel to it. But that was part and parcel of uh, feeling like style was reacting to the more sloppy, organic style of the 60s into the 70s. Now, when, when you think about the mid-60s, it's easy to forget that the early 60s and mid 60s were a hyper stylish time, very tailored clothes. Uh, this was the era of the mini skirt and the go-go boots and the beehive hair. I think Mad Men brought awareness of that back. That you know, our shorthand for 60s does not have to be some hippie in granny glasses and with a ton of fringe. In fact, that would be like maybe one year at the end of the 60s. Right, but it was very much the 70s. Yeah. Uh, denim, you know, worn denim and um, back to the land kind of, you know, floppy hair, the dry look. It was laziness. It was uh, <laughs> co cocaine makes you take good care of yourself. Yes. Um, you you're, know, you spend a lot of time looking in mirrors, well, looking you're in down the, at mirrors. You're in the bathroom anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the kind of drugs these uh, 70s guys were on, you know, didn't really uh, motivate you to, to stand up and, and uh, see how your hair is doing. Right. You were lounging on a hay bale. Which, or maybe lounging on a marijuana bale. A full, Listen, a full bale of marijuana. <laughs> listening to the Flying Burrito Brothers. And what are you going to do? Put gel in your hair? You've got a bag of tacos that maybe you're too lazy even to reach out and open mm -hmm. before they get cold. Like the last thing you're going to do is, yes, see which brand of mousse is, is for you. And this was true in the popular art also. Um, 
For example. Uh, well, uh, throughout the late 60s and 70s, the uh, popularity of psychedelic art, and in particular the poster. Um, it's busy. There's a lot going on. There, there is. There's a ton of, you know, uh, colors and shapes that are very, that are meant to evoke organic shapes, organic feelings, and and to inspire in the viewing as a, you know, if you're looking at them under the influence of psychedelic drugs, you see a lot of motion in these globular organic shapes. And is that why, I mean, I'm thinking of just kind of this kind of crammed aesthetic, you right. know, the cover of uh, Disraeli Gears. Right. Uh, the Peter is that, is that Max. The, the, cream the Peter yeah. Max yellow submarine stuff where there's something going in every corner. And is that because if you're turned on then there's, there's even more movement and color and incident, or does, does it remind you of a of an acid trip when everything's in your head at once? Or? Both things are true. I mean, you hear people talking about LSD experiences where everything is melting, mm -hmm. you know, and Dolly prefigured this with his melting clocks and his, I mean, and who knows what Dolly was. He just was guessed, on. right? He was he not did. LSD. Yeah, no, he guessed. But yeah, it, 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 to look at those posters under the influence of a hallucinogenic drug, you would absolutely see a lot of motion and other detail in it that was sort of suggested by your hallucinogenic experience. But also you could look at them when you were sober and kind of... It, it, it would it, approximate. It, it would. It, for it, straights it, like me. It evoked it. And that that remained the kind of popular style throughout the 60s and early 70s. And also this was a period of political upheaval and a lot of the poster art was very political. It was revolutionary posters, posters that were encouraging people to to engage in political motion. And you think of the, the most iconic poster of the time, which is the love poster, mm -hmm. L-O-V-E, which, you know, is both very graphic, but also it's a political statement, right? Uh, and it's all very warm, the 70s smiley faces and the, the big kind of droopy letters thicker on the bottom than the top. Mm -hmm. They're not... They're not, mm. there's not a lot of aesthetic purity or linear clarity there. No, it's very blorb. Blorb. That's the sound you would make when you yeah. looked at um, 70s posters. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just look mm. at the face of Glenn Fry, and you're like, <laughs> blorb. Sometimes his face is going to be making that sound back to you probably for a lot of the 70s. And Glenn Fry is an interesting case because he was very blorb in 1975, but in 1985, he was very swing. Is that so that and that's the switch to cocaine as well? Yes, I assume. It <laughs> like, is. So uh, there was a transformation culturally in the late seventies, and we've talked about it from a lot of different directions. Right, the late seventies was a period when disco arrived, and in a, in a way, in a mainstream way, kind of put itself in opposition to this stadium rock kind of blorb culture by making a much flashier, a much more androgynous, a much speedier, yeah. clubby, urban kind of culture posited against this, like... The schlub drugs. Right. The of the early 70s. And even though maybe the skin is cocaine white in a lot of this stuff, the uh, the aesthetic is not. It's influenced by gay culture. It's influenced by urban culture. It's got street art in it. But we also have a lot of other things happening, right? This is also punk rock is happening yeah. in um, in New York and in London. And then New Wave. New Wave. Uh, and, which is, again, very tailored. And, and, and new romantic music, mm -hmm. which is, yeah, extremely affected and foppish compared to the blue jean, the blue jean blues. Do you worry, and put a pin in, in denim for sure. I want to get right back to this. But you worry that we're giving the distant future kind of a disproportionate idea of the importance of 
say the late 1970s, <laughs> just because you and I, and you specifically grew up then and we have lots of theories about it. Do you feel like they're going to be like, for every show about 1978, I want a show about 1678 and we are not delivering on this promise? It's true that that this is our time and we're still trying to digest it. We're still but, trying to work through Jimmy Carter. But uh, when, you, bugs. when you think about the eras that followed the 1970s, how much aspersion was cast upon the 70s. Oh, you're reclaiming them. Right, because throughout the 80s and the 90s, the 70s were still looked upon as a time of American decline. And it was conventionalism. You know, just everyone knew that those were bad fashions and aesthetics. Terrible clothes, terrible music, terrible culture. We talked about this with Disco Demolition, right? And when you think about it as an era of American manufacturing, that's when all of the quality control in Detroit went to hell. The rust belt really signaled the end of American industrial supremacy. What are the great 70s... uh can you do an architecture? I guess, is that when you get this awful, br- we should do brutalism for sure. Mm-hmm. But you go from this, you know, the space needle and the, you know, the forward looking future buildings of the sixties to massive Eastern European slabs. Yeah. The brutalist college campuses and even the world trade center. Let's make brutalist skyscraper. Let's make them bigger than the empire state building. <laughs> Screw you, Art Deco. <laughs> That's right. You can put your empire state building inside the box of our new skyscrapers. Uh, and that's true. I mean, Albany, New York being a, a great example of, um, because the money to build brutalist architecture really came from governments George Soros. and no, not, he wasn't really, uh, oh, he, wasn't? he wasn't owning the liberals at, at the time, 1974, but you had college campuses and you had urban plazas that, I mean, you know, like government plazas that really had the money to, to build that style of architecture. We'll be getting back to brutalism in the omnibus. I'm and, sorry. and that was in, in a large part connected to the idea that cities were places of unrest and that if you were going to build a campus, you needed to build it with the the buildings kind of... These are prisons. Well, or or they are prepared to repel a protest, (laughs) right? Right. And that's true of these urban plazas. These are not forward-thinking Greek polices of any kind. We're going to bolt these steel doors and you can protest all you like. Skyscrapers are not rockets. They are, um, yeah, like toddler toys. But the craziness of the very late 70s is you feel a transformation happen, that the 1980s begin sometime in 1978. The 80s began sometime in 1978, is that true? That, I mean, there's a there's you a feeling. Into, do you have a theory? Is there, like, is there some one Sex Pistols record or like, what is the thing? Because you know how people are like, the 60s ended, uh, you know. That, yeah, you know, the, the day the Beatles broke up or, no, Altamont. or Altamont, exactly. Yeah. You know, there's always one day in mind where. And, and I think that, that another way of looking at it is that the 70s began in 1968 because really the majority of the 60s was spent in a time of affluence and, you know, a very tailored approach to life, right? I mean, automotive design and, and music and culture were still largely influenced by the baby boomer generation and by a time of hyper style. The space race. The space Forward looking. Whereas the anti-war movement really kicked into gear in the very late 60s and that presaged the 1970s, which was an era of kind of dropping out and a a tremendous cynicism about. Election of Nixon, right? November 68? 68. You're going to say the 60s and then? Well, but when you think about what happened in 68, just leading up to that, the assassinations sure, of King Martin Luther and King Bobby. and Bobby. And just the, I think, 
when Cronkite was dismissive of the Vietnam War, that was a major explosion. We could talk about that on the omnibus. Too. Did you hear yesterday? This is um, or thousands of years in your past. Yeah. Did you hear that thousands of years ago? Tragic news happened, Futurelings, that you will not even remember. Seth Rogen is no longer attached to the Walter Cronkite movie. Oh. Seth Rogen almost played Walter Cronkite, people. I had no idea. You don't know how close we are. Walter Cronkite movie was in the works, and I cannot imagine who cast Seth Rogen. Uh, I think it is some um, news media reacting after Dallas uh, and the Kennedy assassination. Right. So I I think it's Kennedy assassination seen from a news media angle, and they were going to have the genius idea that Seth Rogen should play Cronkite. Boy, you should play Cronkite. How many names do you have to get through (laughs) before you get to Seth Rogen on on your Cronkite list? Like there are, uh, you know, I'd cast Denzel as Cronkite before I, I get to Seth Rogen. I think Seth Rogen's agent was out there pawing through scripts and like, you know, it would be great. Main problem is he's Canadian. Here's Come your, on. Here's your Oscar. Canadians, you do not get Cronkite. Um, but also during this sort of mid to late 70s, we saw the sexual revolution finally kind of. You didn't. You say no. we. I was like I was like five. Yeah, I mean, I was a little bit older and I saw it, but I was not invited to participate in it. By the time I got to that age, I had like a like a bottle of uh, Martinelli's uh, alcohol-free champagne in one <laughs> hand, and I was just like, "I'm here. I'm 15." I'm sure I saw a picture of Raquel Welch on a newsstand. Yeah. Does that count as participating in the yeah, sexual pretty revolution? Much. And I, so I I stood there like on the threshold of it, and the people on the other side of the door said, "Welcome to AIDS." And I was like, oh, you're kidding me. Come on. I'd spent my whole childhood thinking I was going to get invited <laughs> you into spent your the- whole childhood waiting for this? Well, I did. I was like, Plato's Retreat. I don't even know what it is, but I'm going to get invited one day. <laughs> nope. Uh, but we, we had at this point, I mean, the sexual revolution evolved into a kind of, again, what appeared to be a very sex positive and kind of... Um, Anything goes. Slightly, you know, like accepting of androgyny throughout the 70s. Sure, Twiggy. Right. Well, that's pretty early 60s. But, you know, in the 70s, there was, it was I mean, pornography Bowie. had become socially acceptable. You know, after the, and this is another, we're, we're just talking about a thousand things that are going to arrive in the omnibus at, in future times. It's going to be all late 70s from now on. But the arrival of Behind the Green Door, the kind of seminal, I'm sorry to use the word seminal in this context, uh, <laughs> like 35 millimeter nationally released pornographic movie that played in theaters. The slightly arty seeming one that you didn't have to go to someplace really sleazy for and could maybe take a spouse. You could take to. a date, right? Mm-hmm. And this is this plays a, a large role in the uh, in the movie Taxi Driver where the uh, where Travis Bickle mistakes uh, culturally what Sybil Shepherd is prepared to to do with him on a first date. Uh, she didn't want to go to Times Square and watch a porn movie. They go to Candleshoe instead. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. She storms out. Wouldn't that be funny if they go to a Jodie Foster movie in Taxi Driver? <laughs> but uh, by the late 70s, that kind of culture had matured. Uh, Playboy magazine was now something that you would find on the coffee table of middle class people. Uh, my mm-hmm. uncle subscribed to it. It was the the maturity of that era where you could legitimately say you read it for the articles because Playboy had some of the best interviews of cultural figures of the time. Right. Th- that, you know, that's where you would go to read a long form interview with Norman Mailer sure. or Jimmy Carter or, yeah. famously said there was lust in his heart. 
in a Playboy article. And is that where he confessed to seeing a flying saucer? Was that in the pages of Playboy? Uh, I can't maybe, remember. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it was. This was not. I can't believe we haven't done Jimmy Carter's UFO experience. That well, seems well, like that should be your only episode <laughs> of this show. We'll get there. God, I should be writing all these down. Hopefully someone on the Futureling site will transcribe all the all the shows that we anticipate in this Yeah, but episode. if you wanted to read Updike or Cheever or Garcia Marquez short stories, it would be Playboy. would get Playboy. And this was an era of a kind of proliferation of uh, nudie magazines or men's magazines that were available at regular newsstands. Uh, but also the art started to change and started to change along with the music and the time. It felt like there needed to be, there needed to be a cleaning out and a new kind of modernism because we had fallen so far. And you could see it in Playboy where... For decades, their idea of go-to girly art was the good girl art of Alberto Vargas. Vargas, right. Which was very retro. It was, you know, these... Harken back to the war. Yeah, plump country girls you could see on the side of a bomber, right? Yeah. And they were, they and they were, were always... All, they're always airbrushed with an inch of their lives, and you just want to reach out and give them a little pinch. Yeah. They're adorable. They were doing the dishes, and you could kind of just see up under... <laughs> the apron. Uh, under their apron. <laughs> It was, you know, it was titillating, but they were wholesome. Extremely wholesome kind of throwback erotica. And that changed utterly in the 80s when Alberto Vargas ceased to be the face of good girl art and Playboy, right? Well, and this happened actually right around this time, 76, 77, when a new artist arrived at Playboy by the name of Patrick Nagel. He was Ohio born and a baby boomer, born right after the war. He'd served in Vietnam. Hmm. And then he came back from Vietnam and went to the California Art Institute or the part of the California Art Institute called uh, the Schoenard Institute, which was the kind of art college that had originally funneled a lot of animators into the Disney company. Yeah, isn't uh, isn't that now CalArts? CalArts. Essentially, it's just a track for animation. And that and that was a Disney innovation, right? Schoenard was an artist who who started this institute in order to create an institute of you know a, a, a university of fine arts on the West Coast. And Disney found that as he was uh, recruiting animators to make his films, that a lot of them needed a little bit of brush up. Uh, again, I apologize for brush up in that context. But uh, I think you should apologize more for Seminole than for brush up. This, <laughs> the, is, this is not even anywhere as close to as upset I was earlier. But he would, Disney actually would drive his artists personally over to Schoenard to give them night classes or to for them to take night classes Are you saying in Walt animation. Disney would do this personally? Walt Disney would, would pile would them like, in his hop car. in the car. Let's go, boys. You're going to night school. His ashtrays are full of the cigarettes that would soon kill him. And by the 60s, he Disney was kind of instrumental in combining Schoenard with some other, with CalArts and informing that institution. And so at the time Nagel is there, or, or is it just a, a bunch of grown men learning how to draw the great mouse detective and well, the rescuers? And there's, here's this one guy who's like, chicks with amazing <laughs> cheekbones. That's all I care about. I think it was a place that a lot of aspiring artists of the time attended CalArts and uh, Nagel ended up with a BFA from uh, Schoenard and also Cal State Fullerton. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. 
Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. This was a time when illustrators were sort of separate from graphic artists or designers. You know, this the, these... And certainly fine artists thought less of both of them, right? Right, right. Illustrators were commercial artists rather than fine artists. And I think that's true to this day in art school. You know, if you're not some conceptual person, you know, whose art involves your own menstrual blood in some way... Right. You know, you, you, you're... If you're not you're dunking like, a Christ in a bowl of pee... You're not really yeah, an artist. Cocoa Krispies and urine. <laughs> yeah, then you're, yeah, if, you, if you're just doing magazine art. But Nagel was one of the artists that, that bridged this gap. Um, he started doing illustrations in Playboy in the mid-70s, and he had already kind of established himself as a, a graphic artist in Southern California. But these Playboy illustrations really brought his art to a wider audience, and they were such a contrast to the Vargas art because we should describe them. I'm sure a lot of people who have never heard the name Patrick Nagel could immediately pick out his work, even in the future. I assume Patrick Nagel will survive. I assume rec rooms and door rooms (laughs) of the wreckage of the future will still have there will still be like women uh, hanging askew. Nail salons and hair salons out (laughs) in the suburbs that still have the the uh, the Nagel Nagel esque prints in their windows. But what Nagel did was he took photographs or he took images of women and gradually made them more and more two-dimensional, taking out all the details that gave those pictures depth. And Like today, you would literally, your, your uh, Photoshop or whatever has an option called posterize, where you can you in- reduce the color palette, increase right. contrast, skin goes very white, shadows go very dark. And eventually you get like four tone. You get to a thing that could effectively, if you cut it out with a razor blade, effectively it would be a like a stencil that you could spray paint on the side of a building. Yeah. The, the eyes were very bold and black. The hair was black. And only the details that you absolutely needed to suggest the expression of the face, the lips were highlighted, but otherwise, and they were, you know, universally white-faced women with black hair. Uh, but it was graphically very, very startling as opposed to the kind of, as you were saying, the the rounded the plumpness. comforting roundness of a Vargas girl. This is like, you will cut your finger on this lady's cheekbones. But also, they communicated an aloofness, a kind of, where the images were idealized, but also unapproachable. And this was an era where we saw in the United States, uh, the rise of the women's movement. You could no longer represent women just as housewives and farm girls and you know, comfort. Uh, yeah, a Nagel woman is, is powerful. She is. She is often gazing directly at the viewer. She does not have a male counterpart, nor is he suggested in most cases. She's not in a context where a man is, she's certainly there to be viewed, 
but she's not coquettish. Yeah, even though she's got the coloring of a geisha, that's the furthest thing from your mind because she you are not encouraged to flirt with her. She no. is the one thing you know when you see a Nega woman is she is out of your league, no yeah, matter who right. you are. That's right. She does not care. I just, I just read, I was reading a description of the physical features of a Nega woman. The article uh, notes that she always has self-assured areolas. <laughs> what? And I don't even know what a self-assured areola would look like. I'm not sure I've ever seen an areola in a Nagel print. I mean, breasts are usually covered by a demure hand. Yeah, off even in the play, maybe in the Playboy ones, not so much. But right. yes, typically, right in you're the Playboy right. ones, she is more exposed. Typically, it's more demure, and often it's just a face. The but she's certainly out of your league. Yeah. And this is also a time when Playboy is moving away from showing models with pigtails and bobby socks and into women that are more self-assured in, in their nude pictorials. They're all in, in working office jobs. And, and it <laughs> they're all, is... They're like filing or... Uh, no, what's, what's more modern than that? Oh, Even uh, filing is a little retro. Co- co- collating. <laughs> That's the best you can do. I'm, I'm trying the, to think of the, the glass ceiling ends at collating. <laughs> but I, but I do think this was an interregnum in that women were not fully assimilated into the workplace, but they were making inroads, and there was a sense that a, a progressive person, which is typically what a Playboy reader imagined themselves to be himself, you could say himself, himself imagined himself to be. <laughs> A progressive person would be in favor of women's rights or in favor of women in the workplace or in favor of, they would claim, I think at least, to be interested in powerful women. Now- It's kind of a novelty though, right? It's still Marlo Thomas and the hard hat in Free to Be You and Me. Yeah, it's not borne out uh, large scale by like how much women were paid to work in (laughs) offices. Or how these men might've actually treated these women. And it was later in the the 80s where Melanie Griffith, you know- um, Speaking of Sigourney <laughs> Weaver in, in uh, shoulder pads. That's right. The uh, the working girl film really, well, and the movie Nine to Five came out right uh, yeah. at this period too. Where and that's very combative. That's like, if we're going to stake our claim, like it's a zero sum game. Men are going to have to take it on the chin. Like yeah. that's first and foremost in Nine to Five is that there is an enemy. Right. And it's men. Well, and it's men, it's who, are, Coleman. It's men who are dopes, right? I mean, the men in, in 9 to 5 are not portrayed Does as 9 like, to 5 have a, uh, like a nice guy who's on their side? I don't even remember he this. He doesn't appear. No, I, I mean, not pictured. ultimately the colonel uh, comes in and is convinced, but he's, he's, he isn't like... Is he a Kentucky colonel? He, he, he is in every way a Kentucky colonel. I think he might even wear a ribbon tie. Probably. And he's probably eating crawdads. I mean, just if we're going to call all the way back. Uh, so Nagel becomes a uh, kind of, he's a clarion. He's a symbol. He's, he's a symbol of, um, of this transition from the 70s to the 80s that also is accompanied by New Wave and then eventually by MTV and what we think of as the MTV time. Now, what's curious about it is that it also has elements of this constant retrofication of American culture that we see throughout the 20th century, where in the early 60s, you see a lot of Mary Poppins kind of looking back at the style and culture of the teens. I was thinking about how just the the accident of Disneyland opening in 1955 means that to this day, all these Disney theme parks have a Main Street, USA yep. of the beloved, whatever, because that, that was the beloved nostalgia of That's 1955. Right. Was barbershop quartets yeah. and uh, bicycles with one big wheel and a bandstand of, of you know, 
the the gay nineties, I guess. Yeah. Um, so this was the the kind of retro that that seemed so appealing, so uh, it harkened back to such a simple time. Yeah. And then by the late sixties, well, by the mid seventies, we were harkening back to the fifties. And we had Shannon Na at Woodstock and Happy Days and American, American Graffiti. Graffiti, where now the 50s seemed like this simpler time where we could escape from our 1970s problems by going back and listening to some Bill Haley. <laughs> but then in the late 70s, early 80s, there was um, a retreat all the way back to the 1930s, a re-embrace and a re-envisioning of Art Deco as a sense of style. And Art Deco was a very, very modern and forward-looking style of the kind of post-World War I era, where it felt like we had transitioned out of these primitive times into... A stainless steel future. A stainless steel future where Howard Hughes was racing airplanes and we were building skyscrapers and we had... And indoor plumbing and telephones were going in all across the Midwest. And they were not going to be utilitarian. They were going to be decorative as hell. Right. Super flash and super luxe. Yeah. Um, and this also was, you know, the, the era when airplanes became somewhat ubiquitous and steam locomotives were made to look like bullets. This was deco in the 30s. And so when the people of the late 1970s wanted to again, regain that feeling of modern, forward-looking futurism, Deco was there waiting for them. So the styles were co-opted. And Nagel was, again, his work was able to kind of embrace Deco, the colors of Deco, which were all very pastel. Although Nagel's work isn't intrinsically Deco, it certainly was, was Deco-adjacent. And it's got some of the same influences like, uh, you know, Japanese woodblock painting, for example. Right. You know, that's revolutionizes the West with this idea that you're not trying to make everything look rounded like a Vargas girl or a, or a super realistic uh, canvas by whoever, you know, like what if everything was just flat and uh, the shapes were what was important? This is like Van Gogh's discovery that you later see in the Cubists and in Deco and certainly in Nagel, these kind of white-faced women against uh, colored backgrounds. It looks straight out of Japanese woodblock printing. It does, although he never really claimed Japonism as a as an inf a direct influence. That's interesting. But if you think about how Japan was opened by Admiral Perry in the mid-19th century, and that will also be an entry in the omnibus, Admiral Perry's opening of Japan. Sure, it changes culture. Suddenly um, you got the Mikado. And right, but also in Paris, at where art really was the language of the time, that Japanese woodblock stuff really influenced like Toulouse-Lautrec and uh, Pierre Bernard, who also developed the poster as an art form, you know, the screen-printed poster became a, a way of popularizing art. Can you imagine a life without poster? I mean, how would you decorate you your man to, cave? How would you try to get someone to see a movie? You'd have to describe it. Well. So imagine <laughs> James Bond's holding a gun, but he's looking between a woman's legs. It's so sexy. I think what you would do is have sheet music and someone would sit out on the street <laughs> with a piano and be like, and James Bond is here. He's holding his gun. He's pointing his gun at the viewer. I mean, as a as a rock musician throughout the 90s and 2000s, the screen-printed poster of a rock show became, it was a sign that you had truly arrived sure. when, when your band could have posters and sell posters. And it was also an important part of 
the merch economy. And they were also beautiful. So I mean, beautiful. Did that, how did that economy work? I mean, were there just so many kids who would give you amazing stuff for cheap? Yeah, well, poster art was a thing in the 90s that it was an option that you could do if you were in the rock culture. Uh, design a cool poster, go to your favorite band, say, hey, you know, can I make a poster for your band and sell it at the show for $5 mm-hmm. or $10? Um, you, so the artist would get a cut per... Even then, you you would see beautifully screen-printed posters stapled to phone poles. I mean, they were... It was still a time when, but in a in an era in Seattle where you could get a room in a house for seventy five bucks a month, you know, it was a different economy. Artists could actually make a living then. But so Nagel hearkened his work hearkened back to Japanesium, as you say, if you especially the eyes of the women, which are very Western women, but the eyes are very rendered in a style that feels very Japanese. But as Art Deco is. It becomes sort of the style of the early 80s and mid 80s. Nagel is embraced as very much the graphic artist of the time. And it all comes to a, a dramatic head when his when a painting is used as the cover of Duran Duran's Rio album. Oh, yeah. And this is a thing I think all futurelings will immediately go, aha. They just start, all started humming Rio. Because right Rio now. will survive forever. It will forever be dancing on the sand. And that picture of that Nagel woman on the cover of Rio set off, uh, because this was also very early MTV, and within the the music videos that Duran Duran produced for the album Rio, the women in those music videos are very Nagel women. The um, one on Rio is uh, has kind of a broad smile, which, she's is a, which is a little atypical for Nagel's work. She has a big smile, but she does not seem in your league, does she? Her eyes are not, <laughs> it's not a Duchenne smile. No, she as is. As you'll recall. She's having a great time, and it may be because she has her high heel placed on your neck. <laughs> there is some level of, I want a Nagel woman to punish me, right? Yep. Is that is that a lot of the appeal of the art? Like, I'm a worm before you. I mean, that's very much a thing that you feel when you're on cocaine. Like, <laughs> please punish me right now in this bathroom. Uh, uh, but you, no see, you see then that style just explode throughout MTV. Uh, if you think of the Robert we Palmer. We should talk about the Robert Palmer videos. videos where the, the women in his band or his fake band are just Nagels come to life. They're, they're real women made up to look like Nagels by pulling their hair back severely and really powdering their faces super light. And they've, they've been told just to kind of scowl and pout and look impassive. Right. And kind of they do this non-dance dance where they're, they're kind of playing their instruments, but not really. And it was, I didn't know this at the time, but I guess it was ironic. Robert Palmer is in on the joke. Well, Robert Palmer was a white soul artist who was really like in the 70s, famous for his kind of, he was a British soul singer and he's very much in on the joke. I mean, and the, the, his band is dancing in the exact way that disaffected models, bored women <laughs> who are, who are at a club because they're paid to be there <laughs> standing behind a velvet rope and just sort of dancing, like completely detached from the it's music. The most erotic thing pe- people could think of back then was wealthy, beautiful women who don't want to be here. Right. Who are at like a Bowie after party <laughs> and they're being paid they got in behind the line and this is where you're meant to want to be. And he's really selling it as a front man. He's addicted to love. He and, is. And they are not. You might as well face it. You might as well. And it's it's very funny, but I didn't I didn't really get the joke at the time. I was like, what is this aesthetic? <laughs> well, and it became 
I mean, you saw that mocked. I mean, we Tone Loke used the exact yeah, same band in his video. Are, is it the same women? Uh, no, but but like very like a direct ripoff, and it was irony on top of irony. By this point, I yeah. mean Robert Palmer was in on the joke. Tone Loke was in on the double triple joke. Maybe Tone Loke didn't know that Robert Palmer was in on the joke. Maybe he's a little less in on the joke. I, I don't know. Tone Loke seemed like he was really in on pretty much every joke. Tone joke. Oh. Where's my bell? Oh, because I threw my bell in the garbage because of exactly that kind of of bad pun. (laughs) That's when you need it the most. (laughs) Um, But Nagel himself saw with this rise of popularity also now a rise in his saleability and in his... His cur- his cultural currency. Yeah, like was it kitsch or or was he now the new Warhol or were people like, no, 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 this is just the, the guy that paints like Eon Flux. No, it was not. At, well, and Eon, Eon Flux is Nagel derived it's as Nagel well. Nagel come to life, yeah. No, at the time he was seen as emblematic of a new a new art. And, and this is post-Warhol where the idea of what constitutes fine art has been upended. It can be disposable and st- looking and still right. super expensive. You could just screen print it. And um, and Nagel, in fact, tried to start working on canvas because he had now an interest in his work as potentially as yeah, painting could, fine art. he could sell acrylics. Uh, he even dabbled in bronze. He made a couple of bronzes, um, a, a woman standing in front of a kind of backdrop and then also a sort of bust of a woman. And uh, with the idea that maybe bronze sculpture was a was a growing industry, you think about the you think about Al Pacino and Scarface. You can picture a Nagel bronze on his enormous desk. Sure, I mean if an an areola is self assured, it it'll be even more self assured in three dimensions. What is less interested in you than a bronze woman? Right? <laughs> it's like like you could literally hit somebody with that. Yes, I deserve it. <laughs> And then Hugh Hefner bought a ton of these, right? Yeah. Well, and so Nagel in his lifetime only released a very limited number of actual prints that he produced himself that were signed and numbered or at least made in limited quantities. Mm-hmm. Um, he worked with a gallery in California that produced these prints for sale. And in fact, in Nagel's life, there are only 34 works of art that are official sort of Nagel works. Um, like not silkscreen prints, but are actual paint, painted canvases? No, or? no, no. That are silkscreen prints. Oh. I mean, he only That's made... That's the number of faces he made? That was his body of work. His his prints. And it, and it was all um, not lithographic, but they're, they're seriographs, which are a style of printmaking where each color is added as a separate screen. So they're not produced as one run of images done from a multicolor, uh, what would you call it, printmaking process uh, on a printmaking machine, but they're each color additive. And his works are not as monochromatic as you think. I mean, if you look at them closely, a lot of them probably have a dozen color layers. They do. And a lot of those colors are sort of colors of the time, right? Pastel colors, but also quite graphic colors, uh, bright colors and so forth. So he only produced this small body of work because somewhat tragically he died at a young age. Mm. Um, Nagel was somebody who lived a kind of rough and tumble life. He liked to smoke cigarettes. He liked to drink. He liked to drink a lot of coffee. Basically he lives like I do except for the cigarettes and the alcohol. But I think he didn't shy away from a chicken fried steak. 
Uh, and the and the sausage gravy didn't have to be made out of truffles. He was um, he was just in diners. He was a man from an older style and did not. He wasn't. Uh, He's still a Dayton kid in L.A. Even at the end of his life. That's right, right. a Dayton kid, and like in a kind of, um, I mean, a sort of. It's not ironic. It's just unfortunate. He was asked by uh, the American Heart Association to perform in a kind of celebrity aerobathon. And this was a popular thing at the time. To, Wait, it was? Well, you know, like the celebrity Olympics or whatever. You would put a bunch of... Battle of the Network Stars? Battle of the Network Stars. But with, but with um, coked up Playboy artists? I would so, watch that. So he, he along with Wilt Chamberlain, uh, participated in this, like, you know, get out and run and and do some aerobics to... It was not, it was not a one-on-one basketball game? Uh, no. Between I think, Wilt and Patrick Nagel? I, I think Patrick Nagel probably would have gotten the worst of it. No, it was just some... He just did some heart association, like, come on, I'm Patrick Nagel, like the famous artist that you've all heard of because you've seen my... You've he, seen, was, he was a legitimate celebrity. Yeah, you've seen the cover of Rio. I mean, he famously told a story... Um, or I'm sorry, his art dealer told a story about uh, the two of them, after a successful print release, they went to Bergdorf Goodman mm-hmm. a, in New York City to buy, I don't know what, some fancy wallets. And when he when Nagel paid with a credit card, the woman behind the counter was like, oh, it's you, you know, can I get an autograph? And he turned to his dealer and said, like, you did it, you, you know, <laughs> you... you you accomplish what you set out to, which is I'm now a household name. So it doesn't seem to us now necessarily like logical that, I mean, we wouldn't also have thought of Basquiat as someone that would show up at an aerobathon uh, or war, Warhol. But I wouldn't leave an aerobathon just because Basquiat was there. No. But you're right. You, you wouldn't assume he'd be there. But in 1984, sure. Uh, why not get Patrick Nagel to accompany Wilt Chamberlain? But he uh, he participated in the aerobathon for fifteen minutes or so. He's he's doing some kind of light jogging and eighties jazzercise moves. Yeah, you know, li- leg lifts or whatnot. And three and four. And he uh, he went out to his car and at the age of thirty eight had a massive heart attack and died in his car. Like immediately. Like after immediately she- in the parking lot of the aerobathon for the American Heart Institute Association. Oh wow. Uh, and they found him next day. Sort of, they were like, next "Where, day? where'd Patrick go?" You know, they didn't think to like go out to the parking lot and. See I if hope his car America never finds out what really happens to people who do aerobics. Well, it turned out he had a heart condition, but uh, he also was not. That, in he, the, that he didn't know about. He, he didn't it. know about, but it was exacerbated, of course, by smoking and drinking and and chicken fried steak. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. 
and in the in the aftermath of his death, he died at the height of his fame. And so there was a tremendous interest in his work because it felt like he it was right. he, collectors know oh, there's not going to be any more of this. Right. But there was. There was a lot of unpublished Nagel illustration. And so his dealer, still sort of authorized, started re- started releasing Nagel prints that were now post-mortem prints. He's going to Tupac it. Yeah. There, were, there, were, um, there was a, a lot of interest in, in that first moment in the Nagel's work and signed work from his time. There's a story about a art collector who had come into the gallery and had considered buying a Nagel uh, and was like, let me think about it overnight. And in that night they found him dead and the guy returned to the gallery, but the gallery had put a freeze on all sales. (laughs) And he, uh, this art collector like grabbed the dealer by the shirt and was like, you must sell me this. You bastard. I'll, you know, I was here yesterday. I'll run you out of business. Um, they don't have layaway, I think. No, at, at, well, at most, when yeah. an artist dies, you know, what do you do? Like, you don't want to sell everything for $50 if it's worth 50000 mm-hmm. But so a whole series of prints were released after his death, and they were released into a climate where it was thought that Nagel's work would be collectible, and these were going to be major, this was a major opportunity for every man to get in on an art boom. But whereas most... Nagel prints had been very limited in the number of prints made. Uh, this next iteration was more popular uh, and, and printed in a much larger Because they run. had a big audience in mind. They did. They don't care about propping up value if they can sell a hundred times more. And some of the work that we think of as the real Nagels that we've seen the most on college dorm room walls are part of this series that was released after he died. Uh, the woman with her, you know, arms stretched out wearing sunglasses. Yeah. The woman in the striped tights, the tiger striped tights. And, and so these were, these had never seen the light of day until after he died. These were works that he work. had prepared, but prints had never been made. He did some portraits, which I did not know. Like, yeah, he like did a portrait of Joan, Joan Collins. Like it's the most 80s people you can imagine. I think Joanna Cassidy from uh, Blade Runner. He did those prints and and he was very uh he was very specific about doing prints of really strong women that he wanted to do really strong portraits of them. Mm-hmm. You know, Vargas did a portrait of Bernadette Peters in the 70s. I don't think I knew that, but that's perfect. As the cover of one of her albums, you know, very soft, focused, sort of beautiful Bernadette Peters. Whereas Joan Collins is a super sort of Nagel subject. And a lot of the prints that were sold after his death in 1984-85, were sold at a premium, what had formerly been a a print that you could buy for a couple hundred bucks. Now they were selling these for a thousand bucks or more, specifically selling them as collectible items for the future. To people who don't know much about art, right? I kind of see this in, there's a big art show in Seattle now that there's so much kind of new money here, new young young guys with tech money. That's a big art show. And it's a huge art show. And it really does kind of lend itself to, you know, here's a minor piece by an artist, but you've heard of him and it's six figures, but this is your chance to own a Liechtenstein or something. Right. And they have a ton of that kind of thing because they know there's going to be a lot of art noobs coming in who are just like, no money. idea, no idea. Hey, Liechtenstein, uh, I'll write a check. I walked through that art show once 
on the heels of Paul Allen. It's under the stadium where the Seahawks play, interestingly. And he... Why were you there with Paul Allen? I wasn't there with him. Uh I was there separately to see the the exhibition. And Paul Allen kind of swooped by with an entourage of five or six people. And I was like, well, whatever I was looking at before is not as interesting as this. (laughs) And (laughs) I just trailed along behind them. And he kind of traipsed through and just waved his hand at these massive works of art and the people behind him were scribbling furiously in notepads. Presumably he was sort of picking art that would go in his various epic lobbies of all of the buildings he was building. I mean, he was choosing art. Unless he was going to destroy it. Or he might be doing that. He might be choosing six-figure like, art to like to then cover himself in chocolate and roll on. Those some um, those same staff members come by later with just flamethrowers. <laughs> Sorry, he pointed at it. Sorry, it's going in the dumpster. Um during this moment, 1980, like late 84, my sister was a massive fan of Duran Duran uh, or a Durani as they called themselves. I think every girl your sister's age was yeah. a massive fan of Duran Duran. I just remember long conversations between all the girls in my elementary school classrooms about whether Simon Laban was cuter than John Taylor. Right. And I think John Taylor is cuter than Simon Laban. The guys were mystified. Well, really mystified, again, uh, because the androgyny, it wasn't clear that any of us had access to that kind of androgyny. I mean, I could have put on, put on all the eye makeup in the world, but I wouldn't have. No one in Alaska uh, had access to that. I wouldn't look like Nick Rhodes. You know, the first time I was aware of Nagel's work, I think by name, was because yeah, as a symbol of androgyny. There yeah. was, um, this is jumping forward a little to the early 90s, but there was a kind of a a dark fantasy comic book that all the goth girls like called Sandman. Yeah, You're sure. aware of I know Sandman. Neil Gaiman is now an international publishing sensation, but he first, I think, kind of- And a friend, right? As you, you've met Neil. I met Neil at, yeah. a, at a conference. I mean, not a friend, but- I would not say friend. He's a, he's a very big shot. But you know, he did kind of teach me how to be a writer. Like I saw him at a lot of signings, just be the nicest guy. Yeah. And every time I do a book reading or a book signing, I am doing my impression of Neil Gaiman, who I thought was the best at it that I had ever seen. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he had a, there was a, an androgynous character in there who was some kind of uh, immortal, um, eternal representation of the concept of desire, mm-hmm. neither man nor woman. And desire, he, she, it was always drawn like a Nagel woman, man, you know, um, right. with no identifying secondary sexual characteristics, no pronouns, didn't look like any of the other characters because it was always just straight out of a Nagel print. And that was the first time I looked up, who is this, who yeah. is this artist you see in nail salons? And that was my gateway. Yeah. Nagel did draw men in the Playboy illustrations, but they were very androgynous, yeah. uh, with Bob haircuts and so forth. So what happened when the market was flooded with... Uh, well, so my sister, sister in right? the ni- early 1980s, uh, the state of Alaska gave, started giving like yearly checks to all Alaskans because the oil money was producing so much interest that the what was called the permanent fund, which was, you know, the state of Alaska took a cut of all the oil revenue and a very small cut of the oil revenue from the state. But that produced this fund, this operating fund for the state of Alaska. But the the way that that money could be used was very limited by law. But one of the ways they tried to distribute it at, to benefit all the residents of the state was to give a check every year to residents of Alaska. And this started in the early 80s. And the first check was for $1,000, which in 1980 money was a lot of money. 
It wasn't $1,000 total. It was one of those per resident. $1,000 per Alaska resident. Which is crazy. Just a $1,000 check showing up in the mail. And we were young teenagers and none of us had $1,000 and $1,000 arrived. Every man, woman, child? And child. Wow. Um, and a lot of families, a lot of my friends' families. Do you think a lot of people um, uh, induced labor <laughs> in order to so have a baby have one more baby by the day the check i'm not gonna sure come. if it went to babies who knows i don't remember but it certainly went to preteens hmm. uh some of my friends their parents took that one thousand dollar check out of their hot little hands and said you know we're providing room and board to you child of ours you don't get this thousand dollars for yourself but my parents said you know this thousand dollars is the beginning of a bank account for you yeah and you can learn about responsibility and learn how to use a checking account. let's make a budget and then the, the subsequent year, $1,000 arrived, and then another 1000 every year. Uh, and did you spend it, or did your parents make you? So some people, like me, put every one of those checks into a bank and never, ever touched it. And I would sit and, and paw over my bank book, <laughs> and every time I earned you know $10 uh, mowing the lawn or whatever, I would put that money in the bank because I recognized that having money in the bank was better than anything you could buy with money. Mm. But my sister was not this way. My sister, when people gave us a dollar when we were little kids, I would put mine in a shoebox. She would spend hers on candy. And so in, the, uh, in 1984, at which point we had now a few thousand dollars in the bank, she was very much in love with Duran Duran and she bought a Roland Juno 106, which was a very expensive synthesizer that Nick Rhodes played uh, for herself because she was a Nick Rhodes fan and she wanted to be the synth player in an all-girl new romantic band. Duran Duran cover band? In Alaska. Uh, and then the other thing she did was buy a Nagel print. And this was immediately after his death and she bought the first of the post-mortem Nagel prints and it cost a thousand dollars. Wow! And it and it was sold to her as an investment because this Nagel print, the first after his death, was going to be an investment grade piece of art. That's such a funny thing for a teenager to to buy uh, with their windfall. Yeah, is fine art. She wanted this print on her wall because you know she had every Duran Duran poster you could have, and this was. And she could tell this would be better than a cheap Nagel poster somehow. Yeah, this was. I mean, it's a framed poster. To give a little bit away of our family dynamic, many years later, my sister owed me some money and had not touched her Juno 106 at any point uh, six months after it arrived, six months after she bought it. And, it. and it migrated around the house and then became my synthesizer because I was a musician. And this nickel print, which just ended up sort of in the back of a closet, she paid me for the debt that she owed me by giving me the Juno 106 and the Nagel print. And it isn't that I wanted the Nagel print, but it was an asset that she had that she thought was worth money. Which of these do, do you still possess? I still have both. The Juno 106 is uh, not in this room, but I've used it on all the Long Winters records. Does and it have some amazing uh, Nick Rhodes sound that you just can't uh, get today? They're fantastic instruments. They really are. And they can still be had affordably. And the Nagel print is hanging on the wall in the other room. I put it in my daughter's room. Well, I've seen that in your daughter's room, but I had no idea it was actually a, a print from the time, an actual contemporary. And uh, and what happened with the market flooded? Did the value hold up or so not? So unfortunately, Nagel's style, first of all, was easily duplicatable by cheap 
knockoff artists. Oh, yeah. And so a lot of what we think of as Nagel artwork is, in fact, not by Nagel at all. It's Nagel-esque. By, yeah, it was easy to just take a photograph, uh, turn up the contrast, and then draw over it with a Sharpie and make a poster for a hair salon. So the style of art was very easy to sort of flood the market. His The people that were trying to manage his estate did a pretty poor job of not also sort of devaluing his work by overprinting it. Yeah. His wife has her own sort of side business of printing Nagel pieces and selling them. And again, the early works were printed on archival paper, uh, you know, and sort of beautiful prints. And later on, versions of them became lithographs. They were printed on cheaper paper. And then the 90s came and the 80s started to look ridiculous. And Nagel became the poster child. Literally. <laughs> Self-administered. I, I found the bell. Uh, became the poster child for that style. And so he fell on the garbage heap of people rejecting the 80s. Also, a lot of those works, and you see this in nail salons, a lot of the work, the colors of the ink, uh, they're very sensitive to light. Oh, yeah. And they're as, always faded when you see them in a... Yeah. As the as the colors fade out of them, all you see is the black and white and you, and this sort of yellowish cast to what had formerly been beautiful pastels and, and, and vibrant colors. So the work suffered by association with bad knockoffs. What about when the 80s came back? You know, we are, the, we are living in a, a moment of 80s resurgence thanks to Stranger Things and Ghostbusters and everything's back just because it's the same reason it always is. People remembering when they were kids and hey, right. there used to be Ghostbusters. So when the 80s first came back, it was uh, about 10 years ago. And there was a resurgence in interest in nail prints. Um, but then that happened just in advance of the economic collapse of the, uh, the late 2000s. Yeah. And usually what happens, uh, this kind of nostalgia interest in art, uh, it's this same new money you're talking about. Young people who have disposable income and, and have not quite matured in their taste in art are like, you know what I want? I want one of those nails that used to hang on my older sister's wall. And so the prices of Nagels went up and then collapsed when there wasn't as much disposable income for art throughout the 2010s. Now there is a renewed interest in Nagels' work, but astonishingly, it can still be had very affordably. And by that, I mean even signed works from his life, uh, signed in his, in his own hand and numbered. Um, there is a secondary art market for this, but Nagels are, have not yet appreciated commensurate with their sort of cultural influence and impact. And so there is an art market for it and you can buy a Nagel for yourself worth more than this one I've been schlepping around for 30 plus years. Are you doing this uh, entry into the omnibus in order to prop up the future value of your possessions? Right. So I've invested in a lot of single, uh, you know, signed Nagels uh, since I really started investigating this. And now I'm hoping that every futureling is like the greatest artist of the 20th century. What does your daughter think of having a, a, a Nagel on her wall next to her princess stuff and her Garfield books and whatever? So I have, does I, she like it? I decorated her room when she was very young and I put a Nagel in there. I put a picture of Muhammad Ali. I put a 
Big Bird and a Linus. It's just like the Dalai Lama, she has to choose one of these. <laughs> and, but I also, you know, I found paintings in thrift stores of horses. I have a couple triple crown winners in there. I have uh, sailing ships and old maps. You know, I, I, she was just a, a little baby. And every few months I go in her room with her and I say, what artwork do you like and what would you like to replace with something else? And over time, little by little, she said, you know, I would like this sailing ship to go because that's for boys. But I want, you know, I like this horse here. I like the... Did you tell her women can be uh, uh, seafarers? All I do is tell her what women can do. Women can be pirates. She has a very strong feeling about what she is and she's not listening to me. But the Nagel has never come under her scrutinizing eye. She, uh, She neither confirms nor denies. She lets it just... Hang. And that concludes Patrick Nagel, entry 823.SS0115, certificate number 31513, in the Omnibus. Futurelings, we sincerely hope that social media does not exist in your time. It is a scourge upon ours. But... I got to say, you definitely want to go to John's Etsy store where he sells Nagel knockoffs. Come on. I, I go around, you know, actually there's a, there is an artist who just had a, a showing in New York. I forget her name, but her art show was photographs of Nagel knockoffs in nail salon windows oh, that's funny. that were all faded out. I think it would be funny to do like great dictators in Nagel style, like Pol Pot. Oh, wouldn't that Painted be good? Painted like Nagel or whatever. A well, you know, I, w- my other uh, podcast, Friendly Fire, had a, uh, we had an idea of a t-shirt where we took Leah Thompson, who spends all of the movie Red Dawn wearing a beret, and we did a t-shirt of her as Che Guevara, <laughs> and and done in that style, right? The, the, the hyper blown out picture of Che Guevara. We thought that was a great idea, but apparently, and this is something I still haven't really tracked down, in the last few years, Che has suffered in the popular opinion. So when we were young, Che was just kind of, I mean, we weren't revolutionary Marxists. We just, every once in a while, you would see Che on somebody's wall or somebody's t-shirt. But we released this t-shirt and got a lot of feedback from people that they would never be caught dead wearing it. Do you know how many people Che killed in the Battle of... Right, all that stuff where it's like, Che is a mass murderer and a genocidal... But here's the thing. Leah Thompson, to my knowledge, is not... No, she's not. A genocidal... And and this was a hilarious t-shirt, but there were a lot of people who... Because Che has not been double, triple rehabilitated yet as a, a freedom fighter. And I honestly don't know what book or what college curriculum decided that Che was a mass murderer. Because on the list of 20th century mass murderers, Che is pretty far down. He's not even in the top 20. Well, he's not as far down as most people you'd put on posters, I think is the issue. Oh, I see what you're saying. He's not right. as far down as the people who killed no one. Right. Who but, ideally you would celebrate. And you don't see Pol Pot about, on a t-shirt What about Yorkshire veterinarian often. James Harriet? No murders. Hmm, put okay. Him, put him on a poster. Put him on a t-shirt, but it doesn't. he doesn't look like Leah Thompson, first <laughs> of all. And she really does, I think and it was intentional in Red Dawn that she looks very Che-like. Yeah, she's a paramilitary type. Uh, is, but, this, is this a thing? Doing my kegels and looking at nagels. Is that like a rap lyric? No, but it could be. It could it be, could, right? Part of the Ken Jennings original gangster uh, <laughs> reboot. Like when they become markers of uh, of taste and wealth again, like just rapping about Cristal or whatever. So, so who would you nagel first? 
would I nagel? Gaddafi? Would you would you oh, nagel Gaddafi? I, I don't know who. You know what would be fun is to do maybe like pro wrestlers in uh, oh, in nagel style. Sure. Do Roddy Roddy Rowdy Roddy <laughs> Piper as a nagel? I would like to be nageled actually. Uh, yeah, that would be fun. We should do t-shirts where it's you and me and Nagel style. Although I don't know if you could Nagel a beard. I think a beard is intrinsically un-Nagel. We can use one of those older pictures of you where you just have kind of a sad walrus mustache. Yeah, all right. When you're in your non Mustaches are not super Nagel either, I gotta no, say. No, but you could have a trimmed mustache and it would be slightly Nagel. I am more Nagel ready than you, for sure. Yeah. For sure, but well, I am kind of, is, I'm kind of blorby though. The problem is you don't you have no uh, no contrast. Like your eyebrows are the same yeah, color it, as your lips. If you amped up the contrast <laughs> to get my skin white, he's like, wait, wait where did where everything else go? You just see pupils. Where, where's his hair? <laughs> John does not actually have an Etsy store, but he does have an Instagram. He's at John Roderick. He's also on Twitter under that same handle. I am at Ken Jennings. As this, as a show, as a property, as a historical institution, we are at Omnibus Project on every social media platform in our time and yours. If whatever your appendages are can still handle a computer keyboard or Roland Juno, I guess, um, hmm. check it out. Uh, you can, uh, if there's a way to email us from your time zone, you can send correspondence to omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. You can congregate with your fellow uh Nigga loving mud bugs mm-hmm. um, from the Forbidden Zone or wherever it is you live mm-hmm. at uh, in the Futurelings Facebook group. They're a they're a good hearted bunch. They are very welcoming. Don't feel except, intimidated. Except for the really really dark ones over there that are just uh, preparing to eat the other Futurelings. I can sense that there are a few over there who are just they're just there for food. They're just waiting. Yeah, they're just waiting. They're That's waiting awful. to take the precious bodily fluids of the other futurelings. Like in hopes that the the actual future futurelings are, are something edible. Like they, are, well, are lo- yeah, lobster men. I think so. They're sitting there with big nutcrackers waiting for the <laughs> lobster men to evolve. Uh, or you can actually send us physical, tangible, corporeal items if that's what you're into, um, by mailing them to Omnibus Project, PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline, Washington. 98155. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Although we know that Duran Duran's Rio will be at least one document that uh, that explains our civilization. Duran Duran did the theme song to A View to a Kill. It's, uh, it's all a flat circle. And at that point... Duran Duran had somewhat lost the musical plot, I have to say. But they came back. They came back with Ordinary Love in the early 90s. They did. They did. And I've seen them a few times in there, an amazing live act if you can go. Uh, We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear uh, may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence in the form of a giant mud bug allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.